My name is Charles, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, it's good to be here with you guys this morning. Um, we spoke earlier about uh, the video on, video off. The reason I want my video on is because I'm going to invite you this morning. Um, you know how you tell the difference between bullshit and the truth when somebody's speaking? You look into their eyes. You look straight into their eyes. And that's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to look into my eyes. I want you to look straight into my eyes. And I want you to stop thinking and feel your gut. When you're listening to me, I want you to listen to your gut and feel what, what my words mean in your gut, not what they mean in your head. Um, not all alcoholics are like me. Uh, I... I I know people who sobered up when they were 40 years old, 50 years old, they had normal, fairly normal childhoods, fairly normal lives, but somewhere along the line later in life, they crossed the line and they became an alcoholic and they have developed the obsession and the compulsion. Um, that's not my story. Um, I was born into uh, a very abusive situation, which turned me into somebody who needed to escape reality just to survive. That's how I became an alcoholic. Now, um, you probably noticed AA has changed a little bit over the last few years. Uh, back in the old days, we didn't talk about this stuff. Uh, as a matter of fact, we were told, this is AA, please re, uh, restrict your comments to how they affect your alcoholism or how, uh, you know, about your drinking and your alcoholism. But uh, with the advent of uh, Zoom and, and, and the way things have changed over the last few years, more and more people are starting to talk about the real issues that made them turn into alcoholism, childhood trauma, childhood abuse, uh, neglect, um, all those things that shaped my personality, shaped my soul, shaped me to be somebody who did not want to be me. See, I drank because, and again, I'm only talking about me. I drank in the early days. I drank and did everything because I did not want to be in me. I did not want to be Charles. I did not want to live in my life. I didn't want to live in my body. I didn't want to live in my house. I didn't want to live. And that's why I became an alcoholic. But again, like I said, there are different kinds of alcoholics. And, and so if you can't relate to my story, don't, don't consider my story the only story. I am just one type of person, one type of alcoholic, and this is my story. But I have no choice but to give you my truth. And this is my truth. And again, I'm going to touch on certain things. As, as I go through, the, the Malaya's told me I've got uh, 15 minutes to, uh, to share 65 years of experience and 35 years of recovery. No problem. Let's get started, shall we? So I was born into a home with two parents, of course. Um, my mother very fucked up as, as a child. She came from a very bad place, very little education. Uh, her mother died early. She uh, went through a lot of different stuff, abuse and, and neglect and that kind of stuff. Came out of that home, uh, all screwed up. Uh, my father, uh, he, again, raised in a very stern sort of discipline or a lot of physical violence for discipline, that kind of stuff. Uh, but he sort of managed to cope. And uh, in his early 20s, he found the love of his life. Uh, he married her. Uh, he had two children. Uh, when she was pregnant with her third child on the table, she died in childbirth. So he lost the love of his life and his third child 
in childbirth. Uh, but he still had two small children, two and three years old to raise. Uh, my mother came up from a very small community uh, outside St. John's uh, looking for a job. He hired her as a housekeeper. Um, she raised his two children. Uh, shortly after he got her knocked up. Uh, nine months later, I came by. Uh, he was not a very patient man. After she came back from the hospital with me, he got her knocked up immediately again. Uh, my brother came along 10 months later. Um, I guess he figured that, uh, you know, um, it was cheaper to marry her than to fire her, get rid of her and, and, and hire somebody else. That's how my early life started. Uh, so he had the two sons that she was raising. They were the love of his life. They were her Bess's boys, you know. Uh, and then the second family, me and my brother, and a little bit later, a couple of years later, another child, a girl came by. We were the housekeeper's bastards. Uh, so this is the situation that I was born into. Um, I have found that uh, the early story, that's more important than my drinking uh, history. Uh, my, uh, my drinking, uh, you know, my, my drunkalog, everybody here knows how to drink. Everybody knows how to, how to, to you know, to use drugs to, to, to escape reality. You don't need to hear all those details. Um, but what I'm going to tell you now is going to sound a bit, uh, is going to sound a bit off, but as I swear, it's the absolute truth. And like I said, look into my eyes. Uh, I'm not going to tell you any lies this morning. I, um, I had my first full-blown blackout when I was seven years old, but it wasn't on alcohol. It was on gasoline. Uh, when I was about six, I got into sniffing gasoline. Uh, when I was seven, I was in a basement with a can of gasoline, uh, sniffing the gasoline, and I went into a blackout. My arms dropped, the can dropped, and all the gasoline spilled over the floor. Even at seven years old, when I came out of the, this blackout in a few minutes, I looked around and I knew, even at seven years old, I knew I was in deep shit, that if somebody flicked on a light switch or there was a spark, this whole basement would explode. Uh, I ran around, opened the windows, cleaned up the gasoline and told my parents that I'd, I had spilled a can of gasoline. But that experience sort of saved me because if I had kept on sniffing gasoline, I would have become one of those children from a reservation whose brain had so much brain damage. I was so scared by that experience about knowing that I'd almost blown the house up that I stopped sniffing gasoline. So that sort of saved me. Uh, I started using anything I could to escape from my home life. Um, Uh, this is where it gets difficult because this is where I start talking about childhood abuse. Um, have you ever heard the term covert narcissist personality disorder? That's uh, is something that's becoming more common now. Basically it's what it is, is, is somebody who's so fucked up that they hurt people and then tell lies about it. Uh, that's how they, they control people. They get pleasure from hurting people. And then, and then they tell lies about it and keep it a big secret secret and they control and manipulate people like that. My mother was one of those people. Now I didn't know that back then. I, I just knew she was a, a very cruel and, and, you know, sadistic person. Um, but my mother started, uh, physical violence real early, uh, when I was very, just an infant, 
Uh, as a matter of fact, I grew up, I learned, I started biting my finger like that when I was a small child. And it was years later that I, I before I understand what that was all about, uh, I would be beaten until I was quiet. So when my early childhood, I would, she would beat me and then I, and she wouldn't stop unless I was quiet. So I would bite the flesh off my own fingers to keep from screaming. And when I was quiet, she stopped beating. And that turned into, a, a, that, that of course was a coping mechanism, but that turned into something that went with me my whole life, because as a small child up to seven, I'm a program. I'm a, I'm a computer that just records. I'm not able think so even as i grew up and and even uh, all through my life right up until i was 50 years old 60 years old i would still bite my fingers whenever i get angry whenever there, there's frustrations I mean, I, <laughs> that was a coping mechanism that i learned as a small child and that's and that uh, followed me my whole life and it caused me shame my whole life because you can just imagine being in the school and i something would happen or i'd be bullied huh? I became this freak. And, uh, and even when I was married, you know, I, I, my wife never understood that. And, and but uh, my father, uh, he wasn't uh, an abuser in that way, but he was very violent uh, because what would happen was that he didn't want anything to do with us, the, the housekeeper's kids. He had his two sons that he loved. Uh, he knew he had to feed us and clothe us, but he didn't want to waste one second of his time on us. And he made sure that I knew that every time I looked in my father's face, I knew I see it in his eyes that I was a piece of half bishop garbage. And I was going to be a drunk and a failure, just like my mother's family and just like everybody in my mother's family. And I wasn't worth his time. And that's how I grew up from the, the first time. First time my father ever touched me, he kicked me across the yard like a football. Uh, for putting a hole through a piece of felt in the backyard. Now, he was the one that left a two-year-old child with a screwdriver in front of a piece of felt that he was going to put on the roof. But to him, it was the child's fault because he put a hole in the felt. That was the first time he ever touched me. The only time he ever touched me after that was with a leather belt or his, his hand. Uh, but here's the, here's the real damaging part. The physical abuse is not what did the damage. What did the real damage is that then he would look after at me after and tell me it was my own fault. He did it because I was a lazy youngster or I was bad or I was I wasn't I had done something that deserved to be beaten for. And that's what did the real damage, because that's when I learned who I was. I learned that I wasn't as good as other people. I learned that there was something wrong with me. And that's the way I grew up. And that's that's that was my early childhood. I won't, again, I won't give you all the details, uh, but I'll ju just give you an example. Uh, my mother would use manipulation and control. And when I did something she didn't like, I'd get a beating for it. And then she would tell people that, well, she had no choice that, you know, these were bad youngsters. And the only way to control a bad youngster was with a wire cord. Uh, do you guys have electric frying pans? You know, that wire cord is covered with rubber that you plug in an electric frying pan with. That was my mother's weapon of choice that's how she used to control us she take that double it over twice and you could get she could get a good swing with that and that's how she that's how i was disciplined <laughs> good word discipline right uh and then that's how she'd use, that's what she would use to control me uh when i did something she didn't like i get that but here is the real damage that then she tell me that it was my own fault that she had no choice that this i deserved this because i was a bad youngster and see, I believed her. 
and I grew up and even when I was in a man, those early programs, I believed that I was bad. I believed that I was lazy. I believed that there was something wrong with me that I deserved to be beaten. Um, when my father would get home, he'd come in, he'd be in a rage and I didn't understand it, but she had told him that I'd done something, uh, either steal money from her purse or did told lies or did something. So I would get another beating from my father for doing something. And when I'd look at him to, and tell him no, that I didn't do that because I didn't, then I get another beating for being a liar. And then he'd look at me and let me know that I was a worthless. How could you lie about your mother? How could you tell lies? How could you be so vile? And I get another beating for lying about my mother. That was, that's how I became an alcoholic. I, I, I became somebody who did not want to be me. I became somebody who did not want to live in this world. Now, I grew up like that, but fast forward now. So um, anywhere I could find a drink, I, I would sip drinks out of, out of uh, glasses that when they would have parties, they would have people in. I'd go down and I'd, uh, after everybody went passed out and went to bed and I'd drink whatever was left in the bottom of the glasses, you know, or left what was in the bottom of the beer bottles. The first time I got a sip of alcohol when I was seven or eight years old, I knew that that was my answer. And I tried everything I could to get as much as I could after that. I would be a small child and I would sneak down and I would uh, go into the liquor cabinet and take a big glass and take just a little bit of rum, a little bit of vodka, a little bit of gin, a little bit of everything, put it in a glass, fill it up with apple juice and take it upstairs. And I would drink that and fall asleep. Uh, that went on until the bottle started to go down. Then I started to fill them up with water. Uh, when that happened, I got caught. Then my father went out and bought a, a steel frame and put it around the liquor cabinet with a big padlock on it to keep me out of it. That's where I learned how to pick locks. Um, fast forward, I managed because I was I wasn't terribly stupid. Uh, I managed to just get through in school. I managed to get through, and I guess in a lot of cases the teachers put me through. You know, uh, I'd, I'd have fifties and sixties, but they'd managed they put me ahead, and I sort of managed to get through school and managed to sort of survive this. Uh, but early school, again, I was a setup for bullies because I felt like a victim. I was a victim in my soul. So therefore, every time a bully looked at me, he knew that I was just there to be used. And that's what all the bullies always did. I was picked on by everybody because I was set up to be that. I was set up to be the victim. And I didn't understand that. See, and when a bully come at me, I did what all us victims do. I'd say, that's not fair. And I go and I, and that would just give him more excuse to hit me more. And, and so that was a cycle that I, that I went through my whole life, being a victim, being uh, abused by people who enjoyed beating up or enjoyed violating victims. Um, but I digress, uh, uh, going forward, managed to, uh, get through school, managed to, to, to find a way to get accepted into his college. And, that's when, uh, uh, but just to go back, um, drinking at, uh, at five or six years, uh, drinking at eight or nine years old, I got into drugs very early. Uh, I was doing speed when I was 14 years old because it was easier for me to, to buy speed methamphetamine at our local uh, university than it was to get alcohol. So I would get enough money together by doing whatever odd jobs or whatever. And I would buy methamphetamine when I was 14 years old. And I would use that. 
uh, going to parties and, and whatever. I got in with a bad, bad crowd. You know how we had tend to get in with bad crowds? I got in with people and I had access to all kinds of drugs. Uh, I did a lot of speed. I did a lot of uh, acid. Man, if I, I can't tell you how many times I flipped out on acid. Um, funny after in recovery i'm i i i'm will i'll talk about um i'll talk about um, uh hallucinogens in recovery later uh but uh, i'm a big advocate of using hallucinogenic drugs uh dmt um methan or um uh psilocybin and and uh and acid uh for recovery as a as a recovery for depression anxiety and and addiction but that i'll talk about that later um okay fast forward I met a wife, I met a, a girl. Uh, she, of course, because I was set up for a certain type of personality, I found a woman who was emotionally unavailable and who uh, was pretty screwed up in her head. Um, excuse me, but I, I get a little emotional. Um, Okay, before I talk about her, I'll talk about the, the, my first love. The, uh, the, I, when I was around 18, 19 years old, I went to college uh, and I've met this beautiful young girl and she was what, who, the person who saved my life because I fell madly in love with her and she loved me, truly loved me. Uh, and she saved me because I, she gave me reason to live. She gave me a reason to work. She gave me a reason to, to, to manage to get by in school. She gave me a reason to be in this world. And she saved my life that her love and, and, and that first love was what saved my life. And that gave me just enough to keep going because if not, uh, see, I was a person who always thought about suicide when I was a small child, I thought about suicide all the time. Uh, but, um, I managed to, to, to get through it when, when I met her, she gave me just enough to give me the hope that, 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 that uh, to keep going. Uh, but I was an alcoholic. I did things with her. I did things to her uh, that only lasted a few years. And I screwed that up. And I ended up leaving her because I wanted to drink and and she wanted a life. Uh, but I will always thank her because she was the person who gave me enough love to just keep me going. Uh, after that, it became uh, real bad. A lot of heavy drinking, a lot of failure. See, a lot of people talk about uh, failing in AA. I was a failure because everything I tried in, uh, in early life, I failed at because I had no ability to study or apply myself to stuff. So I just stumbled into jobs, whatever I could do to find money uh, to keep going. But everything I failed, everything I failed out of or got quit out of or, or got fired out of. So in my soul, even even when I got out of the home of, you know, my, my uh, uh, home of origin, uh, childhood family of origin, even when I got out of that, everything reinforced the fact that I was a failure because every job I had, I failed at. Everything I did, I failed at. I became uh, uh, a salesman because that's all I could do. Uh, when I was around 24, 25, I uh, got into another relationship with a woman. She was a good woman again, uh, but, uh, but she didn't understand uh, how sick I was. Uh, but she saw something in me. And um, I uh, basically bottomed out to the point of where uh, I, um, when I was around 25 years old, uh, I made a fool of myself at her place one weekend uh, over Christmas. And she just came to me and actually, I remember this like it was yesterday. She said, Charles, she said, I love you, uh, but I can't put up with this. Uh, there's alcoholism in my family. I know about this thing called AA and that, and uh, there's a meeting next Sunday night. 
And if you ever want another blowjob from me, you're going to go to this meeting on Sunday night. She knew how to reach me, you know, bless her heart. She knew how to reach me. Sunday night, I was sitting in an AA meeting. <laughs> and, um, but it was an open AA meeting with Al-Anon. And um, so we went in there and uh, we sat down at the table and everybody, of course, uh, identified me as the, as the newcomer. And everybody went around the table and everybody told me about this, uh, uh, this thing that they had, this thing called sobriety. Now, I had wanted nothing to do with it. I was only there because I figured it was easier to go to this damn meeting than it was to find another girlfriend. That's the only reason I was there. But even at that first meeting, I felt something subconsciously, something in my gut. I listened to people talk about the shame. I listened to people talk about uh, feeling worthless. I, I listened to people talk about doing things like getting up every morning and peeking out through the drapes to see if the car was in the driveway. That reached me. Because see, that's me. That was my life. I, every morning, I'd have to peek out through the drapes to see if the car was in the driveway because I couldn't remember. My life was blackouts. Every day I had blackouts. Every time I drank, I had blackouts. That was my life. Now, even though I didn't stop right away then drinking then, there was some, that seed was planted. And I knew, even when I listened to these people, I knew that I was in the right place. This was the first time in my life I had ever found people who understood how I felt, who understood how I drank, who understood me. But again, I was a fucked up kid at 24 years old. I, I wasn't ready to stop drinking. I kept drinking for a while. Uh, lost that girl. Uh, a couple of years later, I did sober up. I went, I was finally, uh, went, and this time I went to a meeting because I was I, I, at the end of a suicide attempt and, and I had nowhere else to go. It was either go to one of these AA meetings again or die. Crawled into this AA meeting. And again, I had that same thing. And here's the true story. This is amazing. Uh, First, I was, you know, coming off a tail end of a suicide attempt, went into his first AA meeting, sat in the back of the room so that nobody would see me. And I, you know, wanted desperately for the floor to open up and I could just fall in and just disappear. But I sat there in the back of the room and there, were, uh, there was another newcomer there and he was half drunk. And halfway through the meeting, he got into this, oh, you know, I can't go on, I, you know, I, I can't go on, I need that, you know. And I, because he was doing that, uh, everybody addressed their comments to him instead of me. So I could sit back and watch all this. And so I, I sat back and I listened to this guy and I listened to everybody talking to him and that. And you're never going to believe this, but it's true. After the meeting, I walked up to this guy and I stuck out my hand. And I said, don't worry, things are going to get better. That was my first meeting. And then I have told this guy that don't worry, things are going to get better uh, because I felt it in my gut. That, that I was in the right place. Um, now, uh, when I got sober and went to traditional AA, uh, it was not a good time for me. Um, I... Um, I'm an atheist, and I was always an atheist. Uh, and when I went to AA, 
I was not accepted with open arms. I was not, my, my, my viewpoint was not validated. I did not receive unconditional positive regard, unconditional positive resource, uh, uh, acceptance. Uh, I was told that uh, if I didn't get on my knees, I wouldn't get sober. If I didn't pray to God, I wouldn't, I'd have no chance of, of getting sober in AA. But I needed you people, and I was lucky enough to find a few good people uh, who took me under their wing and put up with my godlessness. Uh, and uh, that's where I, I and my first sponsor um, was a woman, actually. Uh, it's frowned on today to do that, but it was even really frowned on to do that in the early 80s. I sobered up 1984. Uh, and um, so... Um, but she took me in under her wing and she was the second person who saved my life because she would, she would talk to me and she would, and she would look into my eyes and she would mirror to me that, that I was okay. And that I would get over all this alcoholism stuff. I would get, find a way to live and I would find a way to be happy. And even though I didn't believe it, I believed her. I believed that she was telling me the truth. So I'd listen to her and, and, and that's where I started to get my first real understanding of what recovery is all about. See, recovery for me is all about finding a way to be comfortable in my own skin. Recovery to me is not about finding a way to stay sober. My, my, I, to me, recovery is about a way to find a way to be comfortable being myself. If I'm okay being me, I don't need to drink. I don't need to use drugs. I don't need to use internet porn. I don't need to go shopping. I don't need to eat a, two pizzas and then, a, and then a big chocolate bar. If, I, if I'm okay within me, then I don't need to escape being me. Um, early sobriety, I could tell you all about you know, uh, uh, going to meetings, beginning with people and all that kind of stuff. But you've been there. You know what early sobriety is like. Early sobriety is terrible. Uh, you, you're, because when you take away the anesthetic, all you're left with is the pain. And that's where I was in, in early sobriety. I was left with nothing but the pain. Uh, but this old lady, Barb Cody, and a few other good friends that, you know, peers, people my own age that I made good friends with, they saved my life because they, would, they accepted me just as I was. And I learned that I, there, there was hope in here. There was hope in this AA thing, even though I had no, one, no belief in any kind of God. And, and, and I, I always hated those fucking character defects. I excuse my legs. I hate character defects. I, I don't believe in character defects. I'm not a defective person. I'm a sick person who needed help to get well. I'm not a defective person who needs help to be better, to, to be a good boy. Uh, so I always hated that character defect thing. Um, early sobriety, I'll, I'll just shoot forward. I stayed sober for three years, uh, four years, actually. Uh, I went back to college. Barb Cody and these people convinced me that I had a chance. I could actually do something with my life. I could become something. I went back to school. I studied naval architecture. I became a shipbuilder. Uh, I, I found, and what had saved me was I found something I loved. I love boats. I love ships. And so because of that, that was enough to overcome everything. And, 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 I, and I actually graduated. And uh, then I met this wonderful woman. This is where it gets funny. Uh, she was, uh, she was married twice before, uh, not an alcoholic, 
uh, but come from a very fucked up family. But she was one of these people who was who was really successful. She knew how to study. She knew how to to, to pass exams. Uh, she had her PhD in psychology. She was a clinical psychologist, but as fucked up as a bag of hammers, right? Like most psychologists, like most professionals, she could talk a good game, but in her own, but she was fucked up herself. But she saw me and she liked the idea of marrying a sober alcoholic because she didn't want some guy who was going to be drinking beer or watching sports. So my first sponsor, Barb Cody, introduced me to her. She was a good friend of hers. And Grace, Grace saw me as, as you know, the perfect guy, somebody who wouldn't drink beer and watch sports. Uh, we, but and also she had cancer, cervical cancer. The doctors told her that she had six months to, to have a child or that she'd have to have a hysterectomy. She latched onto me and I fell madly in love with her because she was a success. She was, she was everything I ever always wanted to be. Uh, but here's what happened. She only had six months to have a child uh, or she'd lose the chance. So of course, what did we do? We got married right away. After we'd been together for six months, we got married. I moved up to Halifax with her when, and I graduated, I finished school. At, that was just at the tail end of my college. Finished school, moved up to Halifax, a different city with her, got a good job, a wonderful job in the shipyard. Um, but I left all my support group from St. John's. Fuck, the time is really running on. Um, I'm, I've gone over my 15 minutes. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to uh, give you the, the the short version from here on. Um, after three years, four years, I got drunk again uh, because I got away from all my AA friends in St. John's. I got away from my sponsor in St. John's and I got drunk again, even though I had everything. I had a new house, a new wife, a new job, a, a great career and all that. I got drunk because that little inner child came out. That uh, that uh, and, and when something happened one weekend, uh, I got angry at her and I drank at her. You heard the old saying that the first time you get sober is a gift. The second time you have to work for. That's true. Uh, I got drunk and I, and I I would stay sober for a few months and I get drunk again. I'd stay sober for a few weeks. I get drunk again. I'd stay sober for a couple of months and I get drunk again. I desperately tried, but I couldn't get back to AA. I couldn't get sober again. It took me almost two years before I finally got sober again, but I did. I finally got sober. Uh, today, I've been sober a little over 31 years continuously. I've been in recovery, like I said, about 35, 36 years, but I've been sober continuously 31 years. When I got sober a second time, uh, I started getting into all kinds of, of recovery. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember a guy named John Bradshaw, the inner child stuff, all that uh, working on your inner child thing. Uh, I took that to heart and I got into that and I got into meditation and I got into real recovery about finding out who I was. Uh, I got into all that stuff and, and um, um, you know, it's, it's uh, this is where we, this is where I, we get into stuff like, um, I, I discovered that I had ADHD. You guys know what uh, attention deficit is right now. I always had it, but at that time in the early nineties, uh, it became a, a fashionable. And so the doctors were starting to talk about it. And I went to a doctor and I got prescribed Ritalin, um, You know what that is? It's speed basically. Right. And, uh, but I was prescribed. And so I started taking this stuff and I thought, it was going to be a medicine, 
but I started taking my medicine with a glass of water. I ended up taking my medicine with a bill rolled up, you know, but to, to my, I when I started to, to abuse it like that, it took me a few months to, 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 to get honest with myself, but I went back to my doctor and I told him the truth and I got off that stuff and I don't use anything now. Um, and I haven't for, for years. Uh, but, uh, my, the, the, what I really want to talk about, here's what, what the real recovery is all about. When I got sober the second time, I, I, I got serious about real recovery, about finding me. And I got into this inner child work. I got into uh, real recovery. Um, and uh, to me, that's uh, like the fourth and fifth step in, in the program. To me, it's just a form of cognitive therapy. It's a form of dialectic therapy. Uh, the, a, the traditional AA people talk about the steps of uh, you take, you get your resentments and you find out who you're angry at and, and all that stuff. To me, the fourth and fifth step, we're all about finding out, take, getting a piece of paper and a pen and writing down everything that made me feel angry everything that made me feel ashamed, everything that made me feel afraid, getting a handle on all the, 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 the emotions that were keeping me in, in, on that hamster wheel. And when I and did the fifth step, look into another alcoholic's eyes and shared this stuff with another alcoholic, it's like uh, lancing a boil. You know, if you have a boil that's infected, a doctor lances it and they squeeze out all that ugly stuff. And then the boil has a chance to heal. To me, that's what the fourth and fifth step is. Uh, the when I looked into another alcoholic's eyes and vented, shared all these feelings, share it with another human being, I get rid of all that ugly stuff in my soul. And I squeeze out all that, uh, the, the resentment, the hate and the anger and the rage. I squeeze all that stuff out. And then my soul has a chance to heal. Uh, to me, that's what re real recovery is all about. And to me, that's how the steps work for me. And I tailor the steps and uh, to, to, to give me what I need for real recovery. In other words, to find a way to get in touch with who I really am. Because that to me is, it, see, um, the truth shall set you free. But first, it'll make you miserable. And that's what I needed to do. I needed to find the truth. I needed to find out why I drank. I needed to find out who I was. And I needed to find a way to be comfortable in this world. And recovery gave me that. I needed to be around other people. Now, I'll, uh, uh, Malaya, I've, I've gone over 15 minutes. I need about another five minutes. Would that be okay? Okay. You guys all know the, the steps. You all know the AA program. Would you like to know the scientific basis for how the AA program works? Would you like to know how AA really fucking works? The research was done in Canada in, out on the West Coast in, in uh, the University of Vancouver. Uh, the, the scientific experiments were called Rat Park. And what they did was they took rats, got them addicted to alcohol and, and drugs, and, uh, and uh, put them in little cages with a lever. And these rats would, would push this lever until exhaustion, and they would, they would kill them. They would die uh, just getting cocaine or alcohol. But then the researchers did a, a strange thing. They took these rats who were addicted to heroin, cocaine, alcohol, and they took them out of those little isolating cages with the little lever, and they put them into a big, comfortable thing with other rats where there were little places where they could go to sleep, and they were the little wheels they could play, and there was lots of food, and there, they could meet other rats people and they could have relationships and they could have rat babies and they could have a real life with and and guess what these rats who were uh, addicted to alcohol and, and to cocaine they gave them access to alcohol cocaine and water 
And you know what these rats went for? They went for the water, even though they were addicted to cocaine and alcohol. When they were in Rat Park with other nice little rat people that who they could talk to and socialize with, they went to the water instead of the cocaine and the alcohol. And that's but here's the thing when they and, and they and they had normal lives in their little rat park. But when they took these rats out of the of Rat Park and put them back in a little cage and isolated them away from other rats, those rats went right back to that behavior, of pushing that little lever for alcohol and drugs. And they would do that until they died. And that's what I was. I was a rat who was isolated in my little cage. And that's what I believe all of us are. When we get abused or violated or whatever, we withdraw into ourselves and we don't have healthy relationships. We don't have connection with other people. And that to me is what alcoholism and what addiction is all about. It's about being isolated. And when I'm isolated, I will push that lever for the cocaine or for the alcohol or whatever until I die. But when I, you take me out of that isolation and put me in rat park with other rats, the rats here in AA, the rats in recovery, I, I make relationships. I look in people's eyes. I have friends. And then I don't need to escape anymore. Then I don't need the alcohol. Then I don't need the, the cocaine. And I can escape from that addiction. I can escape from the craving and the mental obsession. As long as I'm surrounded by you rats, I can escape from the obsession and the, and the craving. And then I, I don't need other things in order to be okay. And that's what AA is to me. And that's what I believe AA really is. This is our rat park. This is where we find those connections with people. This is where we find that, that inner connection with, with life, with, with, with whatever, that gives us what we need to fill that empty hole, to stay away from drugs and, 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 and alcohol or you know, whatever your drug of choice is. That to me is what recovery is really all about is finding that connection with people so that I don't need to escape myself anymore. And that's what AA gave me. Yeah, even traditional AA, it gave me that connection with people, that connection with other alcoholics. And that's what, and that's what my recovery is all about. Now I'll just clue this up. I, I, uh, I, I told somebody here that I would talk about things. Uh, I would finish up by explaining what, being an empath is all about and what being an advocate is all about. Um, I've been sober a long time and I've been working on this a long time. Uh, I have found a meaning in my life. Uh, all that suffering that I went through, all, the, all my understanding about, about pain and, and alcoholism, I use that now and uh, to try to help other people. And I got a gift out of all that suffering and you did too. I don't know if you realize it yet, but you got a gift out of all that. All that suffering that you went through turned you into somebody who understands other people's pain. You can feel other people's suffering. You can feel other people's pain like no psychiatrist can, like no counselor can, like no psychologist can. I can understand. I can feel other people's suffering. I can feel other people's pain on a deeper level. And that's why I can connect with other people. And that's why I can offer them hope. And that's why I can help other people the way no professional can. And that's how, why you can help other people the way no professional can, because you have that gift of empathy, that, that deep understanding of what real suffering is all about. And that's how you reach other people. Cause you don't tell people how to get sober. You show people how you've got sober. I show people how I got sober. I let them look into my eyes and let them feel in their gut. That I'm sober today, not because I have to be sober. I'm sober today because I like being me. I like being alive in this world. I like being able to be here and to experience this whole thing. 
Uh, the advocate part of it is that I've decided that I'm going to use all the suffering that I experienced in my life to try to help other people. Uh, and that gives me meaning today that I reach out and, and try to help other people who are suffering. And that gives me a, a, a and that gives me uh, a sense of peace because all that misery I went through, there was a reason for it. I can use that now to help other people. I can use that now to reach you and to touch your inner child, to touch your soul and to help you understand that you're not a bad person. You were just fucked up. Your environment fucked you up and you need help to get unfucked. And that's what uh, to recovery is to me. This is where I come to get unfucked. And folks, that's my 15 minutes. <laughs>